Hey, brother, there's an endless road to rediscover. Hey, sister, know the water's sweet, but blood is thicker. Oh, the sky. Welcome to the Reformed Brotherhood. Brothers don't shake hands. Brothers gotta hug. I'm Tony. And I'm Jesse. Brother? I'm going to have a brother? I've always dreamed about having a brother. If you'd like to join our brotherhood, you can join our Facebook group. You can email us at reformbrotherhood at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at reformbrohood. You can also subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Hey, brother-in-law. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Tony, happy Lord's Day. Happy Lord's Day. How are you? I'm doing well. I love the Lord's Day, and I love being able to sit down and rock out some Reformed Brotherhood with you. Yes, it is like the highlight of my week to just chat theology for an hour with you. I know. This is good stuff. I've really, really grown to enjoy this. And if you're listening to this and you want some other podcasts that are equally awesome in terms of good Reformed content, good conversation, then we are happy to tell you that the Reformed Brotherhood is part of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. And if you go to reformedpodcasts.com, you can find who is part of this network. And right now there's Fast God Stuff, Reformed Outlook, again, quality podcasts that is going to totally transform your commute to work or what you're doing while you're watching your dog go to the bathroom. It's really <laughs> good stuff. You definitely want to check that out. So go to reformedpodcasts.com. Check it out. Yes. And since you're already on the internet, checking out reformpodcasts.com. You know you You should are. also uh, open up Apple iTunes or Apple Podcasts, whatever the kids are calling it these days. And you should find our show. You should subscribe to our show. And you should give us five societies up. You should give us a five-star <laughs> rating on uh, iTunes. Leave us a little bit of feedback. Let us know what topics you'd like us to talk about. Let us know uh, how we're doing. Let us know whatever you'd like. You can make up a story about your commute to work and how you ran over a Sasquatch or maybe you saw a Loch Ness Monster um, or you could tell the truth too. So you should Either also way, check out about it. Yes. You should also check out Fast God stuff and um, Reformed Outlook and you should give them five stars as well. For sure. And since For this sure. is the first of the month or like the first week of the month, it's systematic time, which I it always look is. forward to. I so what's going down tonight? So tonight, uh, last time we talked about the doctrine of creation and um, the pre-lapsarian state of man. So the state of humanity before the fall, um, which was lost in our lost episodes. But you can check those out. Um, so that leads us to the unfortunate second chapter of the story of mankind, which is the fall and the results of the fall. Um, and that's kind of where we're at now, um, sort of. But then uh, we're going to go ahead and next time we do systematic, we'll get past the fall. So tonight we're going to just talk through um, a little bit of Genesis 3. We're going to talk about what happened in uh, in the fall, how it affected Adam and Eve kind of directly. And then we're also going to talk about how that extends to us as um, Adam's pro- uh, posterity as well. And can I just say that even though we're talking about sin, here's why I'm stoked about this topic. Finally, something I'm an expert in. Yes. Let's get to talking about sin. Yes. Are we not all experts in sin, unfortunately? <laughs> Somebody put that on a bumper sticker. I'm looking at you, Mission Aware. 
Yes, exactly. Why Why is this not already a bumper sticker? I know. Something I'm an expert in. So where's a good place to start for this? So as we often do, we are going to start with uh, the Westminster Standards, and we're going to look at the uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism. So the Shorter Catechism, as we've said before, is kind of what was designed to be taught to children. And so it starts off kind of who's God, how do we know about God, and how, how do we know how to worship God? And then pretty quickly after, um, after it talks about creation, it gets into this idea of sin. So we're going to kind of use questions 13 through uh, 19 as our outline tonight. Does that sound like a plan, Jesse? Yeah, this is good stuff. I, I like this because I feel like if you want to play along at home, if you want to keep score, just grab your shorter Westminster confession or catechism, jump right in it. So is this the first time you've ever referenced the shorter Westminster confession? <laughs> it, you would think that from the way I can't speak about it, but I am familiar with these questions. It's going it's to be all, great. It's all right. I still say Westminster longer catechism, and that's because I grew up in uh, my like early Christian years was in Lutheran circles. And in Lutheran theology, their longer catechism is called the longer catechism. Right. In Presbyterian theology, the longer catechism is called the larger catechism. Yeah, you got I that. I still get that right. You got that Lutheran flavor going on. Yes, a little bit of Lutheran flavor. So we'll start off with question 13, uh, which reads, did our first parents continue in the estate wherein they were created? And the answer is, our first parents, being left to the freedom of their own will, fell from the estate wherein they were created by sinning against God. So Jesse... Can you maybe translate that into modern English instead of 1600s English? As if my translation is going to be better. It's going to be great. It's all good. (laughs) So this is something we've actually, I think, spoken about quite a bit before, which was this idea that Adam and Eve were given this kind of probationary period of which they had the freedom uh, to obey God or not. And essentially what we're saying here is they did not. And uh, that's, yeah, that's basically my summary right there. And that's a great summary. So uh, (laughs) this, this is sort of an intuitive, intuitive thing, but there's a few things to um, point out here. So Calvinism is sometimes painted as though God uh, has creates a bunch of robots that are programmed to do what they're going to do. Right. Um, And so sometimes, you know, people will point the finger and say, well, Calvinism's God is a monster. He created sinners. um, And then he punished those sinners for sinning. And so the Westminster um, shorter here is saying, no, our parents were left to the freedom of their own will. So they, they were the ones that chose to walk away from God. They were the ones that chose to be disobedient. They were the ones that chose to set themselves up as gods in many ways, instead of submitting to the rightful authority of the Lord. Right. And what's funny is I laugh because it seems so deceptively simple to say, but that is the truth of the matter. And in some respects, we at least, well, I'm getting ahead of it, but we we continue in that pattern in so much as we, by our own volition, are continuing to sin. But I agree. This is where I think there's a big divulgence in the sense of some would say, well, what you're espousing is that God just created automatons. Or that even as like Paul refutes, like in somewhere like Romans 10, Romans 11, where he's basically saying it's not that God has, that man is not responsible for his own sin. Uh, but it, it really is important to, if you want to talk about free will, I think the freest will we can speak of in terms of like the classical sense will be the one that happens with our first parents in a prelapsarian kind of way. Right. Yeah. So um, 
I'm not sure that I want to agree with the phrasing of this, but Mike Horton um, one time said that Adam and Eve were the only two humans besides Jesus who had genuinely libertarian free will. And so libertarian free will is, I don't think he was using it in sort of the technical sense, because in the technical sense, it's actually kind of incoherent in itself. But what he was saying is that Adam and Eve were the only two people until Jesus came along. And then even then it still doesn't really work. So Adam and Eve were the only two people who genuinely had the power of contrary choice in terms of choosing sin or not to sin. So as we talked a little bit in Christology, Christ didn't have the um, ability to choose to sin for a whole host of reasons. So um, so even then, Adam and Eve are the only two that could do it. Right. Um, now, like I said, libertarian free will usually means that you can choose to act a against your own will, which doesn't make any sense. So we'll, we'll leave it at that. So Jesse, do you have, um, do you have question 14 in front of you? Oh, you bet I do. This is, this is the doozy right here. So question 14 is what is sin? And the answer is sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So hit, hit us up with a explanation of that. Yeah. I mean, this one's pretty straightforward. So a lot of times you get sort of um, people who want to try to parse out theological terms ad nauseum. And in this case, it's really straightforward. God has a law and um, some of those laws are um, standards that you're expected to meet, right? You're a bar that you're expected to achieve. Um, And some of those are lines that you're not uh, allowed to cross. And so sin is either failing to live up to the standards that God has set Right. So you might think of like a positive standard, um, like honoring your mother and father. Right. That's a positive standard. There's a level that you're supposed to, to meet. Um, love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, your mind. Like those are positive commands you're expected to live up to. And then there's laws uh, like do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Those are prohibitions or um, boundaries that God puts in front of us. And sin would be crossing those boundaries. So we could get into a whole discussion of like the different words in scripture for sin and the difference between iniquity and transgression, but we don't, we're not going to do that. But this is a basic, straightforward answer that sin is anytime you don't meet up with what God has put in place for you, anytime you violate his standard in any way. And that's what to me makes the law so condemning and so awful. That's the only word I can think of because it is both like commission, which is generally what we think of sin. Like in some way I have gone against or violated covenant or law or responsibility, but it is like the sin of omission that always gets me. Like this sense that almost with every breath that I take, I should be asking God for forgiveness because I'm just, I can't conform to it. Right. And that that to me has always been the harder thing, honestly, because Omission is the stuff that obviously you can commit without even realizing that you're not even close to conforming until somebody slaps you upside the head and makes you realize exactly how how far you are falling short of what the standard is. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think sometimes, you know, one of the things that doesn't always come out in a good technical discussion of sin that really should is that even as Christians, we're still sinning basically every second of every day. Right. Right. So the standard love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, all your soul, all your might, all your strength. That's a standard that none of us can possibly meet. And so, you know, we talk about one thing I think that is really Calvinism is really strong on is the, the gravity and the magnitude of sin and how how sinful sin is. And I know for me personally, it's been very kind of helpful in my life to recognize that no matter what I'm doing, 
I'm still not able to live up to God's law. And rather than crush me, which, you know, we'll probably get into discussions about the three uses of the law at some point, but rather than crush me and destroy me because of what Christ has done, that law and that, that, um, recognition that I can never live up to it, it actually drives me to try harder and to do better. Mm. Right. So rather, you know, the law doesn't give me the power to do it, but the law reveals to me what I need to do. And so we should always remember that um, for the Christian, the law is our friend, right? The law is there yes, to right. guide us. It's not there to condemn us anymore. Um, and I, I think that that's just a really encouraging kind of thing that we have to remember. Yeah, it is. It's Jesus, like so many things, turns that completely on its head so that it doesn't become the condemning force, but the force that propels us on. There's a morality to it, right? There's still a responsibility to the law, but it doesn't become the task or the slave master anymore that enslaves you to such a degree where it's, it's like you're just drinking salt water. It's never quenching your thirst and that you continue right. to go back after it. I think it was John Owen who said something to the effect of even our best works are glittering sin. It might, that might not have been him, but I love kind of what's encapsulated in that statement, which is exactly what you just said. That, And I think that's important in this discussion is coming to terms with Sin isn't the stuff that we can just think of that we've done wrong or poorly or bad. It's this conception that we have like a clenched fist within us. Everything, all of our molecules want to rebel against God, even in our saintly state by the saving grace of Jesus Christ through the application of the Holy Spirit. So it is this simultaneous saint and sinner quandary. Somebody was once telling me, giving me this kind of example where to kind of emphasize this, like, you know, when you ask God for forgiveness, even somebody who has a really penitent and repentant heart that is trying to be sensitive to all the ways in which they've transgressed God's law, you usually come up with the list of things that you can remember. But if you were to say, well, just, just throw out like a round number for this week, the things that you know that you have done wrong, what, what you know that number would be, set that on one side and now set aside on the other side, a, an estimate of all the things it's possible you have done wrong that you have not even realized have been offense right. to God. And that number, of course, would far outweigh. And that's the stuff we're not even asking forgiveness for, in a sense. So it's, but but what, how crazy would it be to have to say, I have to sit down and strike all those out. I have to go through them one by one, or I at least have to pray every time, like, you know, Lord, please, please take this away from me. So there's a graciousness in this. And that's where, like you said, the law propels us forward into good moral virtue and standard by way of providing an example through the Holy Spirit that helps us to behave in such a way and conforms us to Christ without all the condemnation. I don't, is, is this like great taste without with less filling? Is that basically what I'm describing? It might be. Yeah, it's possible. <laughs> I like that you actually gave that serious thought like for a second. <laughs> I was trying to figure out how it fit in. And I was like, I'm just going to go with it. <laughs> I love that. So what's the next question? Uh, 15. It says, uh, what was the sin whereby our first parents fell from the estate wherein they were created? I love, I love 16th century language. And the answer is the sin whereby our first parents fell from the estate wherein they were created was their eating the forbidden fruit. So just a side note, I'm currently working on memorizing the shorter catechism and I've been working on it for like four and a half months. And I think I'm on question like 19. So it's taken me a long time. But these these questions, um, they really are kind of humbling. Because not only are they humbling because they're really straightforward, but they're really hard to memorize. So you're like, I got this. And then you're like, wrong, wrong, <laughs> wrong. And it just takes forever. But they're humbling because they sort of slap you in the face with the reality of sin. 
And so for me over the past, you know, I think these, this range I've probably been working on for like three or four weeks, but really just like day in and day out getting into my head, what it is that is our problem, why it is that we have a problem. And our problem ultimately is God, right? It's not the devil, it's God. Right. But understanding what it is that creates that problem with God, what it is that creates, which we'll get into is that disunity with God. Um, that is like some humbling stuff to be like memorizing and like ruminating in. So I've really been convicted um, recently about the importance of memorizing scripture, especially, but then memorizing something like a catechism question or the creeds um, because obviously we have our phones with us everywhere, but if you can pull out an answer in one second, cause it's in your brain versus like fiddling with your phone and getting out there, it's really important. It really makes a huge difference. That's mm. my little plug for memorization. That was pretty good. I like that. Yeah. So question 15, um, this one's pretty straightforward. Um, they sinned by eating the forbidden fruit. So I've, I've kind of reflected in the past about how there seems to be like a series of things leading up to that, that we might look at and say were sin, but we also can't say they were sin. So like Adam was tasked with protecting the garden, which would include presumably casting out the serpent who didn't belong there. He was tasked with, um, guarding his wife and protecting her, which he just abdicated his responsibility. Totally. He was standing right there. And then the snake came up and started talking, which he knows snakes don't talk. So he should have known something was up and he just sort of stood there and then was complicit in her sin. So even though those things coming up, leading up to it are bad, um, we have to remember that like, there's a hard stop there that the sin happens and it's the first sin. Um, so no matter what we want to think about those things before it, we have to recognize that. And I think one thing that that has helped me to, re to really realize is that there are things that lead up to sin that are not necessarily sin in themselves. Right. So that happens in our lives. And at any point in that process, had Adam stepped up and did what he was supposed to do, Obviously, providentially, that wasn't going to happen. But in terms of Adam's choices, which were free choices, had he stepped up at any point there and taken on the responsibility he was supposed to take on, he could have put a stop to the whole thing. And he just didn't. And so how often do we sort of see things coming and we go, well, this isn't a sin, but, you know, maybe it'll lead to sin, but this isn't sin. And then you get to the next step and then you get to the next step. And then all of a sudden you're off the cliff. Um, so that's really important for us to kind of remember all right, I've got to stop sin before it gets there. The earlier in the process, you know, I hate the language of like triggers, but like the sooner I, I recognize my triggers on something and learn to stop them, the more likely I am to stop that before it slides into sin. That's a good point to remember. I like that because it, it occurs to me, if you keep the house swept, keep the door locked, then you're less likely to find yourself in a place or be confronted head on with a temptation that was greater because you did not, because you were not obedient in all these little smaller ways that led up to that point. Right. And it strikes me as well that there's, we bear a large part of that responsibility to do that. So it is a constant effort, but it's one that's when we see in a kind of fair sighted way, especially it looks a little bit down the road. It's one with like great reward. So it's yeah. worth investing that kind of time to say even daily, to, I guess to pray. I mean, that kind of um, confronts me and conflicts me because how often do I pray that way? Like praying against sin, praying to be delivered from sin, even as the Lord Jesus modeled that as part of um, his prayer to his disciples. And I really don't often pray that way, honestly. It's more about what's going on and the needs of the day and for various things that are happening and for giving God worship. 
But this idea of just like saving me, delivering me from sin, or and maybe the way that he does that in some ways is giving me eyes to see when I need to be obedient in small ways so that it does not grow into a larger form of temptation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So um, when we get into st- uh, question 16 and following, this is where I think we're going to spend the bulk of our conversation, because this is where we get into stuff that starts to become not only obviously really important, it's all really important. But this is where um, the reform tradition, you know, really following um, following Augustine, so call it the Augustinian tradition, really sort of takes a sharp turn. Um, away from the direction that some of the rest of the Christian tradition did. And question 16 is basically um, the nature of um, of original sin and how Adam, Adam's original sin, the first sin, um, the guilt of that sin is a shared guilt with all of us. And then it starts to move into how how is it the fact that what Adam did um, causes me to be more likely to sin as well. So there's, there's those two different elements. So Jesse, do you want to read uh, question 16? So question 16 is, did all mankind fall in Adam's first transgression? And the answer follows, the covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself, but for all his posterity, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation, sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. So this is really important. Um, A lot of times you see reflections, um, and this this is coming out of Augustine. Um, talking about, well, how is it that sin is transmitted from generation to generation? And you get some weird squirrely discussions about, um, you know, well, it's the uh, Augustine's theory was that when a man and a woman um, have sex and produce a child, that the lust of the father sort of creates sin in the child and that that sin, that's how sin is passed on. And so then later Catholic reflection would take that and say, well, that's why Jesus was born of a virgin is because then there was a conception with no lust. And that was how Christ was protected from original sin, at least in part. Um, So we don't want to go that direction because the Bible doesn't say anything about that, right? There's zero in scripture about how sin is transmitted. So the reformed, um, variously reflecting on this, what they said instead was not that somehow original sin, either the guilt or the corruption of original sin was passed on sort of in a hereditary fashion. And if you read this quickly, you don't catch it. So let me slow it down a little bit. It says the covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself, but for all his posterity. So when God came and he made the covenant of works with Adam, right? We talked about the covenant of works in our covenant theology episode. We talked a little bit about it in our uh, creation or protology episode. The covenant of works is made with Adam, but not only Adam. Adam as our federal head, as sort of the head of our covenant. He makes that covenant on behalf of all of his posterity. Everyone coming after him was born under the covenant of works, even Jesus, That's really important. And if Jesus wasn't born under the covenant of works, we have a big problem. So there are some people that want to try to push that away and say, well, no, Jesus wasn't under the covenant of works. He was only under the covenant of grace. Well, that is even a little bit squirrely. But everybody coming after Adam was already in covenant with God. That's really important. So then it says all mankind, and then it defines who he's talking about, descending from him by ordinary generation. And that's why Jesus is not didn't fall with Adam because he didn't descend by ordinary generation. Right. His birth was by extraordinary generation. So all mankind, that is those who descended from Adam by ordinary generation sinned in him. So it's not saying that we sinned 
uh, that Adam earned guilt and that that guilt was transmitted to us in some mystical way, not mystical in like the weird, um, super spiritual way, but in some mystical as in mysterious way, some spiritual way we don't quite understand some way we actually sinned when Adam ate that fruit. So it's not the case that I'm guilty of Adam's sin in eating the fruit. I'm guilty of eating the forbidden fruit, right? So if we go back to question 14, and this is why going through the catechism is so helpful because each question is built on the one previous. So question 14, what was the sin that they fell was eating the forbidden fruit? That sin I'm guilty of. So even though I wasn't there, even though I, I never ate that fruit in a, in a physical way, I'm still guilty of that sin. And because I'm guilty of that sin, I fell with Adam. So my fall into sin happened thousands of years before I was born in his first transgression. Right. Does that all make sense? Yes. Yep. And that's, you're exactly right because that's like the really serious difference, at least with reformed theology, it's putting that kind of specific emphasis on why there is, when we, so when we say like original sin, we're talking about like original, like the OG right. sin, <laughs> not, not just like you would have done the same thing, which I've heard right. people say it's, it's way more than that. Right. And you're right. The catechism, that seems like a simple sentence, doesn't it? But the beauty of the articulation and the specificity with which that sentence is constructed lends toward a really robust understanding of what's going on, even though it's just one sentence. Yeah. And so to go back to my point about memorizing, the reason when I when I figured this out, how this sentence works, because it is a difficult sentence. It's yeah, not a it simply is. constructed sentence. Um, in order to memorize it, I had to figure out how the grammar worked in order to get it into my head. And that was the same as an, another question earlier. That was a very complicated sentence. And so the, the act of memorizing this and the same thing happens when you memorize scripture, the act of memorizing this helped me understand it better. And it clicked for me in a way that it hadn't before. So I really can't recommend it enough. Um, I actually started, and we can start one for the Reformed Brotherhood if we want. I started a Bible memorization group on that scripture typer thing. Um, and we can start one for the Reformed Brotherhood. If you're interested, hit me up on voicemail or yeah, Twitter or whatever. It. And we'll, um, we'll get you that. added to that. But um, really, guys, memorize, memorize, memorize. It's so important. And I don't want to sound like an alarmist. And I don't think it's going to happen in our generation. But there will probably come a time where Bibles and scripture and thing, theological resources are not as freely available and widely available as they are now. And if if our generation doesn't take the scriptures and, and commit them to memory, we are facing something that the church is probably not ready for. So commit scripture to memory. I mean, have paper Bibles in your house. There's, I'm, I'm sounding like a doomsday prepper. I'm not trying to. But it's really important. And that's why previous generations in theological history did this. They memorized it because scripture wasn't always available. And so it's funny. Um, I'm watching Vikings, right? We just finished. Yeah. Uh, we just finished uh, the last episode in season four. So we went through this long thing. And there's this sequence, um, right? There's a uh, spoiler alert. Um, there's this uh, king, King Eckbert. And throughout the series, he's really kind of this despicable person. And he's still a pretty despicable person. But as he ages and as he sort of approaches death, he becomes less despicable. And he's sending his son off to try to battle these Vikings. And there's this scene where he quotes the poem in the beginning of Ecclesiastes. For everything, there's a season, right. a time to love, a time to hate, a time for peace, and a time for war. And he looks at his son and he says, this is the time for war. 
this is the time for hate. And I looked at my wife and I kind of chuckled and I said, bonus points for proper application. But the fact is he had that memorized. <laughs> yeah, right? for sure. He probably didn't know how to read Latin. So he'd memorized that at some point, although he's a king, he probably did. But he memorized that at some point from hearing it read out loud. And that's really important. So that's my little tangent about memorizing. No, that so was like on this good. memorization kick. No, that, but, that was huge. Because you never know when you're going to have to confront Vikings. And right. it's better that you have the scriptures ready. Exactly. Ready at hand. It is. It's, Wait, did you get all the way through? Did you get all the way through? Are you all the oh, way yeah, through? Yeah. We're all the way done. So like past like the storming of, yeah, that's past storming of Paris, all that stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We're yeah. totally done. We're, oh. we're all caught up. We're ready oh, for man. season five. We may have so to get the good. history channel just to watch it. So good. Yeah. Anyways, back right, to, so. back to sin. <laughs> Side note, the Vikings are like, at least in this show are like a perfect example of what happens to a culture affected by original sin that doesn't have Jesus. Yeah, so, for real. Actually, that's a really good parallel. It, it's actually a deep show uh, in terms of spirituality. That I mean, oh, I don't want to give much too much so. away. I mean, it's it's worth watching with a group of people and unpacking all the the subplot there. It's it's really good. Yeah, I mean, it's not as though the British or or even the um, the French or the Frankians or whatever they're called. It's not as though they're innocent people. But and I don't think that the um, the the people who created the show are actually trying to show how the pagan laws are at times more fair than Christian laws. Really what it is is that the pagan laws are more fair than the weird uh, cultural accretions that the other cultures have put on top of yeah, for sure. their Christian laws. But you can see that that even, even as corrupt as the English and the French people were in this show, there's still a level of restraint of sin that's taking place among those cultures mm-hmm. that is important. Uh, there's a... You know, this is this was another scene that struck me, right? Prince uh, Prince Aethelwolf or Aethelwolf, right? He's probably the most noble character in the whole show, besides the dead priest. But he he's about to ride off to this battle. He's it's pretty like sure he's going to lose. Spoiler alert! It is a serious spoiler alert. <laughs> I said spoiler alert earlier, so he's about to ride off to this battle. Everybody's pretty sure he's going to lose, and his sons they come to him and they say, "Father, we want to go with you. We want to fight." And this is after now four seasons, so that's probably like 30 episodes at this point, maybe more, 30 or 40 episodes of 12-year-old, 13-year-old Viking boys going off to war with their fathers and it being glorified. And Aethelwulf looks at his sons and he says, no, my job is to protect you and this is not a, this is not a battle for you to fight. And like that right there is a demonstration of, and obviously this wasn't something that was intentional. The History Channel just did this, but they were trying to do accurate history. There it is. There's a father protecting his children and his family the way he's supposed to versus right. the Viking culture that is direct of Christ, um, you know, bringing their men, their women and their children all into battle. A lot of times, you know, people are getting killed left and right. And, you know, it's it's just a very it's a very poignant, clear division, I think, between what you see as a pagan culture without God's law. And then even they, they end up in Spain with some Muslims and even the way the Muslims are behaving, granted they're, they don't have Christ, but they have, they have God's law. Right. They have the old Testament right. law. Even that has had a, I mean, obviously we can get into it with modern day Islam, but they paint those Muslims as more restraint and in some ways more holy than the Vikings who are coming into their, their village and killing them. So it's just a really interesting kind of yeah, case really study, good. I think of, of, um, filmmakers and screenwriters 
not intentionally trying to reflect the reality of things, but doing it because they were actually looking at history and trying to portray it somewhat accurately. Right. Man, well done. Just blowing up Vikings, bringing that into this conversation. It was good. Sorry about the spoiler alert, because that was not nearly as explicit of a spoiler alert as it should have been. I just spoiled like the whole show for everybody. That was a huge one. That was so, but you should definitely go watch it. So quick side note about Vikings to add to the long side note we've already taken. (laughs) And And that is, it was actually first recommended to me by a coworker. And my wife is not like a huge fan of, of dramas that are kind of based on warring. And there's there's like some violence in, yeah. it's it's pretty restrained. I mean, because it's History Channel, luckily, it's a lot of like, you'll see them go to attack each other. Like they're about to, he's about to go after a dude with a sword. You just kind of hear like the sound, like he's slapping a piece of meat, that kind of sound. It's a lot of that. It's, yeah. You don't get to see a ton of stuff. But she said to me, I, I expressed that concern to her, this coworker. And she's like, no, no, it's it's really not violent at all. It's It's really totally tame. So I was like, great. So... Um, we sit down to watch this and um, Jen turns to me and she's like, is this going to be violent? And I was like, no, no, no. My coworker mindset is it's totally good. I don't know if you remember, like first 15 yeah, seconds. The very first scene. <laughs> it's like slow motion of one dude just running another dude straight through with a sword. Yeah. And she turns to me and she's like, are you kidding me? And I was like, yeah. I was told it wasn't violent. I feel like maybe it's been a while since you've watched it and you're not remembering how violent it actually is. Well, I think it got more intense as it, it went along. It gets more and more in both in um, there's also a lot of sexual themes, the depra- kind of the, the sexual depravity. Yeah, there's a lot. They of painted as sexual freedom, but there's a sexual depravity among the Viking culture um, that is prom- prominent. So like they keep your hand on the fast forward button and that gets more and more extreme as you go. That's true. Um, yeah. But it is a foray into the kind of stuff we're talking about. It, it's depravity all around. And it kind of, it, I don't know, there were times I'm watching it and they're talking, they're bringing that kind of the the religious outworkings. And it does make you uncomfortable, but in a way that forces you to have to kind of push outside the bubble of how you normally think and kind of reconcile with, yeah. this is the way the world really is outside of God. Yeah. Yeah. It really, it really, really is. Um, yeah. So we can uh, jump into verse or question 17. You want to go ahead and read that? Let's do it. So 17, into what estate did the fall bring mankind? And the answer follows, the fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. Yeah. So again, building on the previous question, we're not just talking about Adam and Eve going into the state of a sin and misery. And then because Adam and Eve were in this estate, then I suppose their children are too. But actually, all of mankind was brought into this. So we were brought, you and I were brought into this estate of sin and misery long before we were ever born. So that's, that's again, really important to remember. And those two questions really piggyback off each other nicely. Right. And we're talking about misery here, which I think is something we often forget that sometimes sin not only just seems alluring, but it seems like it has little or no consequence, especially like the secret, 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 especially the secret like pet sins or pet disobedience that we might harbor because it seems harmless. But in terms of the community of God, all this stuff has outworkings. It all has tendons. Tendons? What am I talking about? It all has, um, what, what am I, what sort of looking for? Um, tendencies? No, no. Uh, uh, tentacles. Tentacles. It has tentacles that are like far reaching. So I'm glad you messed that word up to go with tendons instead of <laughs> a different direction. <laughs> Oh, man, this just got so real right now. I love it. Live Um, podcasting, folks. But yeah, we work without a net. But I just think there's this essence that we often forget that sin is misery. 
it's it's awfulness and yeah. it's there's there's no joy in it it only robs it only steals it only destroys it of course takes you farther than you want to go and makes you pay more than you ever wanted to pay so wherever you start however small it is i just like this answer is a really good reminder that you just want to be as far away from it as possible yeah yeah absolutely so uh question 18 says wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate wherein two man fell <laughs> i like just can't get past it <laughs> The sinfulness of that estate wherein two man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness, and the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. So, um, again, it's saying that uh, man fell. It consists of Adam's first sin. Um, that The other flip side of this, right? So when we talked about creation, we talked about how Adam was created in a state where he had original righteousness. And we talked about how that was a covenant righteousness. It wasn't some sort of like Adam in light of the fact that he was so great in his own natural state, but he was created in a covenant with God. And because of that covenant, he had righteousness. Now we no longer have that original righteousness. So we are never ever at a point where we are in a, um, a right standing under the covenant of works. And that's, again, that's really important is that there never was a point. It's not like, um, you know, we didn't talk about the age of innocence in the baptism episode. Maybe we'll have to dig into it more, but some people want to try to explain the idea that babies, uh, babies are, are admitted to heaven on the basis that they have no guilt. Right. Right. So they, they never commit any personal sins. So they still need a savior, but they don't have guilt of their own. Well, this is this is saying precisely the opposite, right? We we have Adam's guilt because we sinned in Adam. We don't have the original righteousness that we need. And then it gets into talking about the corruption of the whole nature. So this is this is what's classically called in Reformed theology total depravity. Now we can get into all the discussions about whether that's the right way to call it, other terms for it. But what it's saying is that there's nothing in our nature. Not our, not our affections, not our will, not our intellect, not our big toes, not uh, our eyes, not our bodies, nothing that is uncorrupted. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, everything is as corrupted as it could be, right? It's not utter corruption. It's not utter right. depravity. It's total, as in the whole person is corrupted. So I can think true thoughts, but I'm always going to use those true thoughts in the wrong way. Right. So I can think true thoughts about God. Right. We get to Romans one and it says they knew God, but they refused to acknowledge them. So they had they had some level of true knowledge about God. They knew that God was powerful. They knew that God was his was the creator and they knew that they owed him allegiance, but they refused to acknowledge him and instead exchanged the truth for a lie. So it's really I mean, sometimes people will paint total depravity as though like we can't even think true thoughts. It's like we're some sort of crazy animal that has no true thoughts. We can't even sense the world around us correctly. And that's not the case. But everything that we sense, every thought that we have, every affection we have, every desire we have is twisted in on itself. So I may look at the world and I may rightly come to the conclusion that there's a creator, but I'm going to use that knowledge for the wrong end. I'm going to use that knowledge to try to be a self-serving knowledge for myself. And so that's what this is saying. And it's saying it's commonly called original sin. I'm not sure if that's like a statement to say that, like, this is the vernacular. This is what people talk about it as. Or if 
it's something else. I'm not sure exactly what that clause means. But it's also saying that this is state now that we're in, where we've inherited Adam's guilt. We've inherited his um, lack of original righteousness. All of those things have been imparted to us through our covenant unity with, with Adam. And then our actual transgressions proceed from it. Right. So the the way that a lot of times that's said is we don't we aren't sinners because we sin, but instead we sin because we're sinners. So my sin flows from a corrupt nature. Not it's not as though I sin and then corrupt some sort of innocent nature, which is sort of the Pelagian way to look at it. But it's also how a lot of Arminians kind of start right. their reasoning about that. And I think right. that's really, you know, really problematic. Yeah, because we're talking about a radical corruption of, of the entire nature that is pervasive throughout. I yeah. mean, man is constrained and held back from an absolute depravity by the common grace of God, which is, a, I think, what you were saying there too. Right. But it should be radical enough so that we understand that, as you said before, if we're looking at kind of the cumulative total of what we talked about so far in this at the top, every child comes into the world with an alarming capacity for evil. Yeah. And that's totally an inbred disposition. And I think to a lot of people, even sometimes in the Christian community, that sounds like a really drastic statement. But that's what the Bible is teaching, that I guess to not be too cliche about it, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Right. And that's true like well before we were even born. So it's for me, it, it bleeds out immediately. So I, whenever I'm thinking of total depravity, I'm thinking immediately of the fact that man is totally unable to contribute to his own salvation anyway because he's dead in his right. sins. And that's going back to thinking about just like, for example, like how I conceptualize this is even just thinking about the story of Lazarus, which was not a joint effort, of course, between Christ and Lazarus. He came forth because he was raised, not in order to be raised. Right. And that's a really significant difference. I think it's, I'm just going to quote random people that I can't actually uh, cooperate <laughs> tonight, but I'm pretty sure uh, Michael Horton has like a really great quote in terms of man by nature does not even want to know God that comes out of this corrupt nature that he said something like, we cannot find God for the same reason that a thief can't find a police officer. Yeah. And I love that. It, and, and this is what strikes me as like so damning about this is this is a corruption of volition. Like one of the worst things I can possibly consider or think about for my own self is being in a place where I cannot control my own actions, either physically or mentally. Having that kind of such deep seated corruption is just one of the most horrible things I can possibly consider in terms of my physicality or my emotional well-being or my intellectual well-being. And yet what the scripture is plain and saying is that is exactly your spiritual condition. Yeah. And that scares the pants off of me, honestly, when I think about that long enough. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's exactly what Romans one is getting at. It's not just that we don't know who God is. We know who God is and we right. hate him. Yeah. That's, that's the state of a, of a unregenerate person, whether they are elect or reprobate before they came before the Holy spirit changed them. It's not just that they were ignorant of who God is. They knew who God is. We all know who God is. But rather than acknowledge him the way we should, we hate him. And that's, I mean, that's just a terrifying thought. I mean, I, to think, you know, when we get our head around the gravity and the magnitude of sin, it should cause us to look back and marvel at the gloriousness of salvation. Amen. So when I was still an enemy of God, when I hated him, if I had the opportunity, I would have spit in his face and I would have stomped on his throat and he still saved me. Right. That's, I mean, it doesn't get more beautiful than that. No. And I think that's, for me, that's really where the reform tradition is strongest is that it's not, it's not just that God is sovereign, 
That's true. And that's a glorious truth. It's not just that God regulates life by the scripture. It's not just that, um, you know, the Trinity is real. It's that we really recognize the depth of sin. And because we recognize the depth of sin, we can recognize the depths of salvation. Because as deep as sin is, salvation and grace is deeper. And that's just a truth that is so glorious. We can't escape it and we don't want to escape it. Now, like the old hymn says, grace that is greater than all my sin. That, that's one of the most beautiful lines because yeah. before regeneration, we're just nothing but dry bones. And, but even to make, take it further, like you said, like bones that want to strike back at God, um, it, it, it has to be this drastic. It has to be this radical because that's how pervasive and deep the corruption is. And if we take the edge off of that, because I think that when people make statements like, well, man is basically good, all I can think of is they're trying to preserve, they'd like to take, you know, like a thousand degrees of separation between them and Adolf Hitler. Yeah. We had to go to Hitler at some point. So like this idea that all of the seeds of the worst evil are sown in my heart and by God's good grace, I'm either restrained or saved from those things is remarkable. But that yeah. is just the truth. That's just the truth. So whenever I think of total depravity, I always think of this quote that I know for sure is from Muggeridge. I love Muggeridge, but uh, he wrote, the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality and at the same time, the most intellectually resisted fact. And yeah. then still today, if you speak to any humanist or even the casual person, we so desperately want to believe that there is something within man, not just that is good, but that somehow purifies the moral fiber, fiber in the character at its root. And there is just no such thing. And yet you yeah. pick up the paper and we see great atrocities committed against each other and uh, against the, the earth and against God himself. And we still want to say at the end of the day, yeah, but you know, we're, we're basically good people we want to do good things. Yeah. Uh, that's still the loving restraint of God. That's yeah. all it is. Absolutely. So um, we'll jump into question 19 here. And it says, what is the misery of that estate wherein man, where into man fell? And the answer is all mankind by their fall lost communion with God are under his wrath and curse and so made liable to all miseries in this life to death itself and to the pains of hell forever. Man, so that's it, heavy. And remember, I mean, I know I've said this a couple of times. This is what they were teaching children. So, right. I mean, we, you know, you talked about VBS last week and I don't, I'm going to just go out on a limb and, and say that there probably wasn't a lot of hellfire and brimstone talk at VBS. <laughs> No, I mean, I'm sure that was part of some conversations, but not in the way that it's being articulated here. Right. Yeah. And so this this here, I mean, this is another area that I really think the reform tradition is strong, is what is the misery? The misery is we lost communion with God. So the other stuff, I mean, the other stuff is is bad. It's bad. Don't get me wrong. But in some ways, it's it's a logical outcome of losing communion with God. So there are two options, right? We can be in communion, connected with that which sustains our existence, right? In him, we live and move and have our being. For him and to him and through him are all things. There's In the scriptures, it's constant. It's a constant refrain that God sustains existence. Without God, things cease to exist. So there's that option, communion with God, or there's the alternative, which is eternal death and destruction. It's like drowning forever and never dying. Right. That's how the patristic, you know, people like Athanasius, that's how they kind of reflected on what what the curse was. It was like drowning with drowning forever and never dying. 
Now, I, I've never drowned. I've never, uh, never been not able to breathe. Actually, I did. I choked one time on a piece of cereal. And it was like a second. What? But it was like the most terrifying second I've ever had. What kind of because cereal like, was this? I think it was like Cinnamon Toast Crunch. I was really young. <laughs> But like wow. that that sudden that sudden realization that you can't get to what you need to live right forever like that's hell so the the lack of communion with God is what all these other things flow from but it's not only death it's not only hell but it's the current miseries that people are undergoing so a lot of times you know we hear from coworkers who aren't saved that they're going through this tough time Right. And we, a lot of times we think like, oh man, they don't deserve that, but they do. Right. And like, that's a hard pill to swallow. And it's, it's not necessarily like the best evangelical or evangelistic approach to, uh, to just run up to him and be like, I know that your back is hurting right now, but you deserve that. That's probably not going to be most effective. I don't know. Maybe it would, but, um, we have to remember that like, there is nobody that doesn't deserve that. You know, I think it's R.C. Sproul. We're, this is like the unknown, unsure quote parade, but I'm pretty sure it's R.C. Sproul. I'll, I'll drink, jump it up to like one more notch. Be like, I'm really sure it's R.C. Sproul. That says um, the only in it, the only innocent person. Uh, how does it go? Someone asked him, why, why do bad things happen to good people? Right. And he yes. said, well, there's only one good person. And he volunteered for the bad thing to happen. I butchered that quote. But the idea is no, everybody deserves the bad stuff that they get. And nobody deserves the good stuff they get. The only exception is Jesus, who didn't deserve any of the bad stuff he got. And he got all the good stuff, but then he gave it to us. I mean, he obviously retains it, but like that's that's salvation. And we'll get we'll get to that next time, which is is the beauty of that. Yeah, and it's important to remember that we're not just talking about in the fall that there were bad things added which caused misery, but I think the greatest misery is the subtraction. So if you're created, right. like you said, to breathe air and somebody takes it away from you, it is perhaps the most traumatizing and traumatic and tormenting part because you are now trying to exist in a place or in a space or with something absent that which you were supposed to have as part of your natural existence. So to be removed from communion with God, which is what Adam and Eve had originally, is awful. We just live on the other side of that. And so I think that sometimes we can feel like it's normal that we struggle this way. Like we we might have, I don't know where everybody's at or what your week was like, but yeah, sometimes it just feels like it's, it's difficult for me to connect with God. Yeah. And that's a feeling I just kind of can grow used to from time. There are deserts and there are streams and you kind of move through them as God allows and uh, it just strikes me that we are missing so much, so much of our pain, our suffering is, is a result of that lack of communion. I mean, that's the thing, if you think about it, when Jesus is really wrestling with his impending death, with the sacrifice in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, he is struggling, I, I think, over this very thing, understanding that he's about to bear something that's going to suffer his communion with the Father. Because if you make it all about, well, you know, Jesus was traumatized about the physical death, the suffering, the agony, the shame. So many have since gone to their deaths, happy to suffer in that way. And so here we're seeing something about what it means to be absent communion with God in a real sense, how traumatic, how awful that is for us. And maybe how even worse that we don't even realize that we're living in that world and, and suffering as deeply as we are. Yeah. Well, I think that's probably a good a good thought for us to start to wrap up on. Now, we talked about beforehand how, you know, this is a subject that kind of is hard to think about practical outflows, right? So this is this is not the most technical theology that you're ever going to run into, but right. it's also hard to to sort of like 
put rubber on this. But there's value in just reflecting on the state that we're in. The the not only for Christians to reflect on where we came from, right? I have a tattoo on my arm comes from Ephesians 2, 4, and all it says is, but God. So the beginning of Ephesians 2, we are dead in our sins. We are enemies of God. We're children of wrath. We follow the sons of disobedience, just like the rest of mankind, but God rich in mercy because of his great love for us, right? So we, we can reflect on where we've come from as Christians and recognize where we are. There's value in that. We can also reflect on where we came from and recognize what we're called to preach to save people from right? They're in a state of misery. They're in a state of a lack of communion with God. They're in a state of a lack of original righteousness. And we are called to proclaim the gospel so that we might save a few as brands from the fire. And that's a serious task. But as we talked about a few weeks ago, like we're guaranteed success where God has decided we will succeed. So be bold and be encouraged in that. Um, Jesse, do you have any other reflections or thoughts kind of on what we do with this? I just want to echo that because I think that's right on in the sense that we need to weigh into this, kind of wade into these waters deeply and I, I don't know, kind of get maybe like a kick in the butt sometimes to get on yeah. it and to get on with it. I don't understand why some Christians uh, feel like they, they want to stay away from this. Like I think we need to let ourselves just lean into this and, and understand yeah. that this is where the good news comes in because there is no but God if there's nothing that precedes that that necessitates yeah exactly that kind of stepping in so to me you're exactly right and if I think back again like on an Ezekiel the, that this is going to say like the the biblical evangelist then must preach and he's preaching in a graveyard so it, I sometimes people will use like this hospital ward mentality for trying to save people and I hate that because that's really a strong word I dislike that <laughs> because it, it, you're trying to like insinuate, well, it's like trying to get the patients to take some medicine. Right. But those who preach the gospel, and, and by preach, I'm just talking about what we talked about last time, which was just um, living out the truth in love, witnessing, speaking and proclaiming the gospel message. We're not recruiters. We're right. heralds and instruments of a God-given resurrection. Yeah. And I, I think that should be the fire underneath us that pushes us forward. But also, if you don't have a good understanding of sin, and I'm not saying that mine is complete by any stretch of the imagination, then I think all it does is it really makes our understanding of the gospel and how we live it out like a mile wide and an inch thick. So I really want to be deep in that. And I think we got to really lean into how awful we are absent God. Yeah. So what you're telling me is that we don't just tell our hearts to beat again. (laughs) <laughs> that's that's not how salvation works no i if, mean if, if matt butts was on the he Bible. would sing right now yeah that that was a really good reference right there not <laughs> not at least according to the bible i feel like there's also a good vikings reference in there too but yeah maybe my favorite sort of like making fun of another theological system picture is is it's a picture of a deer on the side of the road that's been hit by a car and is clearly dead like guts coming out like very very pretty grotesque and right. it's got a balloon tied to one of the legs and the balloon says get well soon and the caption just says armenian theology or armenian oh, evangelism it's so rough it's like totally vicious it's like total savage no chill it's awesome uh that's that's really funny though but in in a sense that's kind of what we're saying this is where i don't see like a lot of middle ground either man really is dead as trespasses and for those who would argue that uh, that couldn't possibly be, be what Paul meant because 
obviously people, the people weren't true physically dead and they, they right. had the ability to, to think and to reason and to logically understand like that. That's nonsense. Like he's, he's emphasizing on the spiritual condition right. and that the natural man has no ability to comprehend the gospel. And that meme is right on because there are outworkings to all this stuff. So you might as well start at the beginning and at least by way of like mind experiment or thought experiment or theological experiment, see where it takes you. Yeah. And that's why I think it's important to think about what we've been talking about or why I continue to try to think about it. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to preview our next systematic theology session with question 20. And it says, did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? And the answer, the beautiful answer is God having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a redeemer. So that's what we have to look forward Ooh. to. I wouldn't feel right about hitting you with sin and the law without giving you the gospel. So there it is. God made a way and he took care of it himself. And that's the gospel. Amen. Give me that communion. That's what I'm talking about. Absolutely. So Jesse, if someone wanted to get a hold of us, how would they do that? I'm so glad you asked, Tony. Let me give you one way. You can reach out to us uh, via email at reformedbrotherhood at gmail.com. If somebody wanted to hit us up on Twitter, Tony, how would they do that? They would use the Twitter handle at reformbrohood. Hashtag Tony's the best. (laughs) I just love how in this segment, we always go into like our faux radio voices. Yeah, exactly. This is so great. Or you can leave us a voicemail by calling 607 444-2767. Bros. Thank you. Um, So yeah, so email us, tweet us, send us a voicemail, tell us what you think or what's on your mind for that matter. We would love to hear from you. Yes, we would. So we had a blast this week. We, uh, We hope that you learned something and that you were edified by the discussion. And we hope that you will join us next week. And until then, love everyone. Dang it. I did it again. (laughs) I cannot get it. That's the fall in action right there. Sin is real. I was so, I was so on it. I was so ready to go. The struggle is real. (sighs) Why don't you, since you always get it right, why don't you take us out, Jesse? I will start us off. So thanks everyone for listening. And until (laughs) next week, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Uh